Hi, She Says listeners. I'm host and reporter Sarah D'Elia. Since we launched the podcast in May, we've looked into how crime labs work, how DNA laws are applied, and learned more about police department policies. And we've been following a woman we're calling Linda, who was sexually assaulted more than three years ago in Charlotte, North Carolina, as she tries to figure out how her investigation was handled by police. The series documents Linda's attempt to navigate the criminal justice system and hopefully find some closure. And along the way, we've had some listeners write us and ask questions about the reporting process and about Linda's case. So we thought this week we would pull back the curtain ever so slightly and answer your questions if we can. And to do that, I need a little bit of help. So I have WFAE slash She Says reporter Alex Olgan in the studio with me who has helped to co-report this series. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Alex. We have a list of uh, emails printed out, and we also had some people call us. So I think the best thing to do is actually just jump to one of those voicemails that was that was left, and uh, we'll go to that caller now. Hey, my name's Lisa. I'm very interested in this podcast. Thank you for doing it. Two questions I have. How did you connect with Linda? How did you learn about her story and then get connected to actually get the information to do the podcast? Number two... Um, my understanding is it happened on a college campus. And I just want to confirm, is that true or am I mistaken? Thanks so much. Okay. So uh, thanks so much for calling us, Lisa. The first thing to clarify real quick is that Linda's assault did not happen on a college campus. And um, one thing that I like that we're doing is that we actually have a timeline of events of Linda's assault and takes you up to kind of where we are in the series. So if you ever have any questions about what's happened, you can actually check out the timeline and that might be really helpful as you listen to go along and see the who, what, when, where of everything. Um, So her assault did happen in Charlotte in a, a neighborhood outside of Uptown. To answer how we got in touch with Linda, that's something that a lot of people want to know. So she actually got in touch with us in a way. She started a dialogue with our news director, Greg Collard, um, who is the editor of the series. And basically, they kind of had a dialogue on Twitter, and she was just sort of curious about our coverage, um, what we were going to be doing to cover backlogged crime labs in Charlotte and in the state of North Carolina and um, what what we were doing to kind of cover sexual assault crimes. And somewhere along the way, she disclosed to him that she was a sexual assault survivor. And they had a conversation on the phone, chatted some more, and he said, it sounds like you have an important story to tell. Do you mind if I bring your story to the newsroom and see if someone is interested in getting in touch with you? So he did that um, in the spring, I believe, of 2017. And I remember that being brought to the newsroom and I thought it was a really interesting story and I wanted to know more about Linda. And I remember that I thought it was going to you know, be a very intense story to tell. And I remember thinking that whoever kind of tackled it, it might be very helpful for that person to be a female journalist just because of the type of relationship and the type of questions you would have to ask a female sexual assault survivor So it got assigned to me, and I had um, a really long conversation with her over the phone and then eventually went out to her house and spent the day with her and her husband just kind of explaining to them what it would mean to do this story and, uh, you know, if they were interested in it. And 
Just a couple of interesting tidbits from that day. I didn't have my recorder with me. I left it in the car because I just really wanted to listen to them and to hear her story and to not have her worried about being recorded. And then at the end of the day, I told them to take a couple of days and think about whether they actually wanted to do the story because there would be challenges, um, some that I could kind of foresee and some that I couldn't foresee. So she took a, a couple of days and then called us and said that she wanted to do the story. And that's how that's how we got connected to her. Yeah. And we have two more questions along this line about um, our relationship with Linda that I think are important to bring up. And they were submitted by Amy via email. So I'm just going to go ahead and read them both and then we'll tackle them. So the first one is, is it difficult not confusing Linda's name with her real name and scripts? What's the production process like for scripts? And then the second one is, what is Linda's involvement in the podcast? And is she providing feedback before the podcast episodes are released? At first, it was definitely hard not to say Linda's real name because I have been speaking to her for over a year at this point. So um, I just sort of trained my brain that that was not her real name and that Linda was her real name. And when we're talking about the story in the office, we're not using her real name. We're referring to her as Linda. So that's really helpful. As far as what the production process is like for the scripts, it's pretty intense. I write the scripts. Um, There have been a couple episodes where Alex has co-written. And so we're writing together and it goes through an initial edit with our, with our boss, Greg Collard, the news director. And then it gets submitted to um, a couple other managers at the station and they give us their feedback. Then we incorporate those changes And then uh, it's submitted to a lawyer and he reviews it and he makes sure that we are wording things in a way that won't get anyone in trouble, which is very much appreciated in a really sensitive story like this. And uh, then we take any feedback that he has for us, make some more changes. Um, We also do something um, where we kind of make like a rough mix. And it's important for our editors and the lawyer to hear how it sounds because sometimes Things are said differently than they appear on a page. And since we are an audio medium, when it comes down to it, we like to edit in uh, that that form. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because sometimes you could, you know, you could say like on paper, I hope you have a nice day. But then if you hear someone say it like, I hope you have a nice day, like that means something very different. So it's really important to have um, people's uh, eyes on scripts and also people's ears on scripts. So. Yeah. And in terms of her involvement in the podcast day to day or the episodes, you asked if she if we um, she gives feedback to us. No, in the sense that she doesn't she's not involved in the editing process. Um, She is a source. So we ask her questions and we will fact check things with her and, you know, go over things to say, do we understand this correctly? But uh, no one outside of this building other than our lawyer um, has feedback on the episodes before they are published. And that is just standard practice. Yeah. We, do, we do not let our sources or people that we've interviewed listen to our stories before they're published. So where should we go next, Alex? So our next question comes from Megan, and she actually has two questions as well. The first one was, uh, is the show made all at once and being released weekly? And do you already know how it ends? And so we'll just address that one first. Do we already know how it ends? I have not written the ending yet. So we are very much in active production. We're very much in active production. We have an idea of how the story might end, but we have not written the ending yet. And then the second question is, did you have any reservations about making the story since Linda wasn't, as you mentioned in one episode, an ideal victim? 
Do you, and do you expect the circumstances prior to the rape to be likely to work against conviction of the assailant if it goes to trial? Well, I don't think it's our place to speculate what happens if it goes to trial. I understand why you wanted you asked that question, um, but I don't think it's our place to speculate that. Did we have reservations about her not being, quote unquote, the ideal victim? We don't have anything to worry about as long as we're telling the truth. And that was a really serious conversation we had with editors and with Linda at the beginning of this podcast of, um, you know, we're going to have to ask you some some very invasive questions and more than once. And we're going to have to ask for some documents that in doing so, you might think that we don't trust you, but really it's because we want to have an answer for anything that might ever come up. If somebody asks us, how do you know that this is true? I don't think I had reservations. I wanted to make sure we were doing our due diligence. And I think we've done that between background checks and medical records and court documents and multiple interviews over and over and over again. I don't think reservations, but an appropriate amount of caution and making sure that we were um, just going over over everything with a fine-tooth comb. Right, and we fact-checked and verified Linda's story the way we would anyone else we've interviewed in the podcast. You know, for people that say they worked at police departments, we got employment records to confirm that. Um, We didn't treat her any differently because she did decide to use drugs when she was sexually assaulted. We verify everyone the same way. And then there was another part of that question um, that Megan asked about, was the show made all at once and being released weekly? And I think that's something that, you know, this show was not made all at once. We had several episodes in the can, as we like to say. Um, And we were, you know, thinking that we got a lot of advice from other podcasts and the biggest thing that they said to us was, you know, have as many uh, episodes done before you start rolling the series out because um, you're just going to be swamped with things. And if it's a story that's happening in real time, there are going to be things that come up that you're not going to be able to foresee. So we had about three episodes done um, and, you know, and that was helpful. And now we are in the mode where we are making new content every week and actually part of, you know, this week is we're, we're coming to you and we're answering your questions. It's also giving us a little bit of a breather, too, to focus on the remaining episodes that are some pretty intense episodes that are, are coming our way. Exactly. And like Sarah said, since things are happening in real time, they're changing week to week. So that is why we have not finished all production ahead of time, like maybe in some cases where you're looking at a case that's already been closed. We'll be back with more answers to those listener-submitted questions after this quick break. I'm Sarah D'Elia, alongside Alex Olgan, and this is She Says. Hi, She Says listeners. We want to make sure the conversation keeps on going outside of these podcast episodes, so we want to hear from you. If you are a sexual assault survivor and want to share a piece of your story, give us a call. You can talk about anything that you like, about your experience navigating the winding road or where you are in your journey now. Please keep your answers to 45 seconds or under. And to leave us a voicemail, you can call 704-448-6511. That's 704-448-6511. You don't have to leave your name, but if you do leave us a voicemail, please know your voice may be used as something featured on our website, on an upcoming episode, or possibly the radio. Your deadline is end of day, Tuesday, July 10th. For more information, visit wfae.org slash she says. 
Support comes from WFAE members and Contemplative Rebellion, a peace and justice jewelry shop offering handmade socially conscious jewelry supporting various charitable organizations such as Women for Women International on the web at contemplativerebellion.com. Hey, She Says listeners, I'm Alex Olgan alongside Sarah D'Elia, and we're here to answer your listener questions. The next question comes from Drea. She writes, something I'm curious about and was actually brought up to me by a CMPD member that is a friend is Linda's background in life. Crack is not just a drug that comes to mind on a Saturday night out among most folks that I know, nor does wandering to a convenience store in the middle of the night. Can you shed more light on her socioeconomic status slash lifestyle? Part of Linda's deal of doing the story with us is that we agreed to give her anonymity. And there are things that, you know, we know and have confirmed because we're journalists and we're doing our job that unfortunately we just can't share with people because it would compromise her anonymity and her family's anonymity. I thought the question uh, pertaining to her socioeconomic status was an interesting one. I guess what I will say is that, you know, I've been to Linda's homes many times and she lives on a nice street, um, middle class family. And um, I don't know what image may automatically come to mind for people. And I understand that you crave details and you want to know more about her um, and just have a better painted picture of her. I get that. But in order to do this story, there were things that we couldn't share with listeners. And that's also why the podcast is about her and it's about her learning to navigate the criminal justice system, but it's also about the criminal justice system and the different agencies that make it up. And one other thing to point out is this is not unique granting anonymity to Linda. Media have a practice of, of not naming sexual assault victims. The crime that happened to them is so horrific. Their names are redacted from police reports. We don't, we don't name sexual assault victims in our coverage. Our next question comes to us from Sarah also a great name. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She writes to us in an email, Linda's story is so compelling. I'm wondering if you all talk to other victims of sexual assault in addition to Linda before deciding to tell Linda's story or if Linda's story is the only one that's considered for this podcast. That's a good question. Um, You know, Linda's story was a story that I wasn't seeking. It just sort of found its way to WFAE and we went from there. Um, Before we started the series, we put a call out to people just to see if other sexual assault survivors would even talk to us. And so we set up a voicemail and they, you know, called in and left their stories. And we were like overwhelmed by how many people, male, female, all different ages, um, left messages on this voicemail to tell us about their story. So we heard stories in that way. And there was no way that we were going to capture everyone's story. So we do these listener call outs every episode and people leave us snippets of their story involving sexual assault. And um, that's what we've come up with to incorporate other stories, because unfortunately, we just can't uh, do year long investigations into everyone's story, you know, and that's I wish we could. We just don't have the bandwidth or the people. Right. But Linda's story, I mean, it was unique in the sense that she was willing to to talk to us for a full year. She was willing to let me, you know, in on her home life. She was willing to let me go to 
to different appointments with her and um, sit in and really capture what that experience is like. And not everyone is able to give that kind of access. So the next question comes from Julie and she writes, is the man who Linda identified as, as her assailant, is his DNA now officially in the database? So we can answer that question pretty definitively for two reasons. I'll answer the first part. The first reason why we know he is in CODIS now is because under a 2011 uh, law in North Carolina, if you are arrested for certain violent crimes, including something like sexual assault, you are automatically, uh, a DNA swab is automatically taken from you and it's uploaded to the CODIS databases. Now, if you're not uh, convicted, then your DNA should be removed. Exactly. And we know for a fact that his DNA sample was taken because there is a document in his court file that says it was taken when he was arrested uh, for this crime. So we know it was taken. Um, We assume that it's been uploaded into the system, but we can never be 100 percent sure because the state crime lab will not release details about individuals DNA. But assuming that all processes go according to the way they're supposed to, yes, his DNA should be in the system. And the last question comes to us in the form of a voicemail. Hi, my name is Bobby, and I'm curious if you are sharing all of the information that you discover with uh, Linda and her lawyers. I listened to a different crime podcast, and the host said that they would only share the information if the victim's lawyers agreed to an interview, and I thought that was really terrible. I Clearly, their interest is not in helping the victim. It's in making a radio show. And I realize that both things are important, but I'm just wondering if you guys are following that same practice or if that's a standard practice. Anyway, I'm loving the show. Thank you so much for doing it. I'm sure it's been a lot of work. Thanks for calling in, Bobby, and asking that question. You know, it is tricky because as journalists, we do not work on behalf of the victim. We don't work on behalf of anybody. We are independent investigators. So, of course, the prosecution and the defense have access to all of the things that we've published. That's all, you know, published online, published in the form of the audio. And we reference where we get information and what documents we get it from. So if they wanted to get those documents, they could go ahead and do that. Uh, but because we don't work on behalf of anybody, we are we do not share our information, especially because in this case, one our, one of our sources is anonymous. So the documents that Alex and I are looking at, they're, they're public documents. Anyone could get them if they wanted to. I understand that listeners get really invested in Linda's story, and I can see where it's um, frustrating as a listener to hear that um, maybe a journalist doesn't sound like they're being helpful but I think the best way to be helpful as a journalist is to tell a truthful story and to let the chips kind of fall where they do. So, Sarah, uh, next week we're going to resume with the normal episodes that are published in your feed. And uh, what's, what's, what should we hear next week? So next week we take a little bit of a detour from Linda's story and we introduce you to someone who is a sexual assault survivor that had a very different outcome and a very different experience walking the winding road. But we also look at even though her assault was very different and there were some things that just went a little bit smoother and quicker for her than they did with Linda, 
uh, we also see some similarities and um, some obstacles that are similar to what Linda experienced and some obstacles that are very different from what Linda experienced. Alex, thanks for being on with me today. You're welcome. And thanks to all of our listeners who wrote in or left us a voicemail. We really appreciate it. The She Says team includes me, Sarah D'Elia, Greg Collard, Joni Deutsch, and Alex Olgan. Music is produced by Pachyderm Music Lab. Keep the conversation going on Twitter using the hashtag WFAE She Says. You can tweet at me directly at Sarah WFAE, and that's Sarah with an H. If you want next week's episode in your feed as soon as it comes out, make sure to subscribe to She Says on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can find out more information about the podcast at WFAE.org slash She Says. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Thanks for listening.